you're talking about Yad is the, the, one of the sub themes of, of what's going on here is, is like this idea of truth and reconciliation. Yeah, yeah. And different languages and together to discuss the past in a way that's transformative. Not just like that, what happened, this happened, that happened. But what are the implications for modern day South Africa? And one of the subjects tomorrow afternoon is the TRC, did it work? Was it a failure? Did it not bring people together? Because what I was saying earlier is that I experienced a lot of race and linguistic hatred. Stop. And political and ideological. Yeah, people are yeah, terribly tortured about their prospects. In, and they're not poor people. They're actually pretty wealthy people. But they're very nervous and anxious. And for me, the question then, how, does you, how do you bring them back into the larger community of South African life in a way that's not threatening or angry or finger-pointing? But, and, and Fatima represents that kind of activity. Mark, so you that memory. Hi, Al. AP, how are you? All right, thank you. Yeah, Bring up the chair. Yeah. We're having an informal work. Yeah. People are falling in. My parents call me Ippi. Ippi. You can call me whatever you want to call me. Ippi is good. My parents say Ippi. Ippi. Oh. We'll call you Ippi Tombi. It's a bit too far. It's a bit too far. So, so Ippi, what's going down here is that this is the formal... This is the two o'clock workshop. Two o'clock workshop that was going to take place. But as you can see, the numbers are quite small, which is never a, necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Because a lot more communication can take place in such circumstances than with the larger mobs. So what we're talking about, and it's, it's for me very important because I've been following Father Michael's career. Uh, and I even brought... Uh, a contingent from Hiroshima City in Japan after the, the bombing they were talking about nuclear weapons which is one of my like, pet hobbies and for me it's this whole thing of truth and reconciliation how do you bring South African citizens closer together on common ground and, and what language can we use and what techniques can we use to get people close and to work more happily together and stop Shouting abuse at one another. I mean, Facebook's a brilliant example of that. I mean, somebody says an innocuous remark and a war breaks out on Facebook. And you've been there. So, like, for me, there's a lot of pent up, still today, a lot of pent up anger and frustration. All walks, all political positions. And for me, it's not a bad thing. I mean, diversity is not for me a bad thing. But what, is the, what are the modalities and methods and techniques of communication? That are productive rather than destructive. Well, and that's why you're here. That's mm. kind of why I'm really, really keen to get you mm. to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And then Piers Pagu was saying for tomorrow's TRC session that the time is too short to say everything that needs to be said. And I said to him now in a response on WhatsApp, I said to him that Piers, maybe what we need to start thinking about in 2022, if not earlier, is a full day or two day workshop just on that topic mm. only and let mm. it run. Yeah. So it's over to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's over to you. Okay, so I don't know what you know about the Institute as... Um, assume nothing. Might yeah. Assume nothing. Assume nothing. Okay, alright. So the Institute for the Healing of Memories was... Um, it was established as an offshoot, if one could put it that way, from the, um, out of the TRC Commission. Because only a limited number of people could go to the TRC to go and tell the short stories. And there was still a host of people that, that didn't have the opportunity to do that. And because people were coming in, 
by the trauma center and Father Michael Lapsley then, um, who was part of the liberation movement in terms of him being a, a priest, what do you call it when you serve people? The, uh, the priest of the, of, of the ANC. In a chaplain. He's a chaplain, chaplain. that's the word. He was, he was a military chaplain to the ANC troops. Um, which, which for some people is also a kind of, how could the ANC have had a chaplain when they were like sort of the evil ones, you know? So he was a military chaplain to the ANC. And of course he's a foreigner at that, that he was from Australia. I was going to show the, the movie, but I can send the link and we can share after yeah. this one. And so, so people were coming in from, from, the, from different parts of uh, the African continent as they were coming home, as they were being repatriated, and they were coming through the trauma center in Cape Town. Um, and people generally then, some people, um, military veterans, I'm particularly focus on our work with military veterans. Um, and some of the military veterans, of course, was absorbed into the South African National Defence Force then, and other people demobilised and went on with their lives. And some people were not, but didn't have the skills or anything else other than they were 15, 16, 17 year olds who left the country during 1976, 1985 and things like that. So some of them got education along the way when they were outside of the country and some of them didn't. Um, and so, so then, um, out of that, and Father Michael's story, of course, is with the TRC, um, and he told his story there and so on. Um, the, they formed the, the Institute for the Healing of Memories to create another space for people to tell the stories. Ironically, about two, three years in for the, for, for the Institute, less and less military veterans or people affected that were part of the mass democratic movement actually came to tell these stories. And it was different reasons. Number one is, the war is over, we want to get on with our lives. We just want to forget that we were ever part of it. You know, um, We don't want to talk about it anymore. That there was still also a lot of um, uh, you know, negative perceptions about people telling the story and going for counseling or anything like that. Anything related to that, particularly also that um, it's mostly from uh, black, African, uh, cultural, sort of, no, 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 we don't do that. And then, of course, the difficulty in trusting people that was listening to your story or holding the space for you, because if you don't know them, at that, particularly during the first five years, very little trust. Mm. You know, they kind of have to know your history. <laughs> so Father Michael was an ideal person because he had a history for the labor, um, liberation movement, so they saw him as one of them, um, and are more likely to open up to him. So what then happened with the, with the institute is that after five, six years, less and less, and so it broadened his work to work with people that was affected by HIV and AIDS, et cetera, and so forth and so on. But still here and there having a workshop with, healing of memories workshop with military veterans, individuals but not really organizing it. So fast forward to um, 2018, a group of military veterans comes. Um, the, 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 the government is building this housing complex for military veterans, where they put military veterans together in a housing complex, and 
not as liberation forces, but just a whole lot of different people. So you would have, and also when we talk about liberation um, military veterans, we're talking about from um, MK, from the ANC, we're talking about APLA, we're talking about Azanla, um, and then we're talking about South African Defence Force, Cape Corps, and they're all very different, you know, in terms of the experience of being involved in the war. And um, we also have TDK, Transkei Defence Force, because all these small um, little homelands had their own little military formations. And you were talking this morning about ideology, and all of them have a slight twist, different twist to ideology, and in terms of how they saw uh, fighting for the um, for the liberation of the country. So there's lots of differences between them. And also within when people were in Southern Africa, and you would know more, most probably, do know more than what I do about that, there were also ideological differences in Southern Africa. Zimbabwe doesn't like the ANC, the law prefer to work with APLA, and, and stuff like that and so on, you know? So who was friends with who outside of the country? And then, of course, there was the um, South African Defense Force and the role of the Cape Corps, the Colored Corps, in that and what they played and how they were perceived within their own community. So this group of veterans comes and they're now saying, look, we are older. Most of them, are very few of them, remained with partners that they had before. I mean, mm. their relationships are all just messed up. Personal relationships is a big problem. They're yes, all into these second marriages, mm -hmm. or they can't, uh, you know, um, maintain relationships. They have drinking problems. You know, they're still dealing with what they've done and what have been done to them. You know, because um, within in that, um, and it's difficult because now what compounded the problem is this. Uh, loyalty towards uh, the liberating forces, but also the disillusionment. Mm -hmm. And that creates another thing, because it questions your whole life journey in why terms of, bother? why did I make this huge sacrifice? Look where I'm sitting, what does my children want for the future? And they, but they, for them was that they wanted this story to be told, but they were also now very much aware that before telling this story, they need to go through a process of healing. Mm -hmm. Because it triggers things. And if they're not able to manage it, it could be more damaging than whatever. So they came to the Institute for the Human of Needs. And um, I know it's fine. Thanks. Welcome. And so they came to the institute, and uh, we have one, uh, what we call a healing of memories process, which is about storytelling. It's about people coming together like this, and um, we, people introduce themselves, usually over uh, two and a half days. People come, they introduce each other, put down ground rules and all that kind of stuff. And then they have a list of questions about um, which they go and sleep on, you know, about uh, how did your country affect you, you know, and some people say, no, my country didn't affect me, is this, but why did you start talking, of course, it's different, so they have a whole list of reflective questions, um, people go and sleep, and then the next morning, 
we ask people to draw their life story. So it's a very creative process. Give them crayons and a piece of flip chart paper. And of course, people are like, oh. the last time I was drawing was when I was in sub A, what, you know, what nonsense is this and so on. But it is, of course, art. It's, it's not art therapy, but it's part of expressing yourself and thinking through it. And then we break people in small groups, like four or five, with a facilitator, and they then share their stories with, with one another. Um, and then later people come back into the big group, and then what they then share is what was the feelings that was expressed in that, in the stories, not the stories, because that's confidential. Um, and uh, so, so they express the feelings, and it's all that feelings that we were talking about. The anger, the disillusionment, the pain, the uh, frustration, feeling powerless, um, all of those kind of, you know. It's how you felt then, how you felt during this period of time, but how are you feeling now? And sometimes, uh, the, because feeling shifts over time, and so on. Um, and so in these groups, because we have all these military veterans, we call them, it's a military veterans program, because it's not, uh, it's military veterans from across the board. So in our last one, for instance, we had MK, South African Defense Force, and TDK um, in one workshop. Now it is, and of course they come into that workshop very suspicious. <laughs> everybody else and you know but they call it egg dance yeah and you have to be very careful because my own um background is part of a kind of um struggle baby no? so we very easily slip into the language of comrade and things like that oh and then you must be very careful because that just put people's back up now what, what is happening here who are you talking about so um so language and and all of that is very in the very first evening, um, and it, it, it shows to, on a, on a very basic level, when you talk about the family, that uh, people were talking in English, we were in, that was, it was in, uh, in, in, um, in Gauteng, so we were talking English and they were talking, what is? Zulu, Zulu probably. Yeah. No? There were two languages being spoken. And of course, there was South African defense, there was Afrikaans people there, but nobody was translating, you know. And so then, like, you know, one of the others is like saying, no, 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 why are we not? And it speaks in Afrikaans, you know, to make, and it's like taking that first step to say, no, but we want to, you also to feel comfortable, you know. And that kind of was like a breakthrough moment in that workshop. We, it just shows to people that there is a we want we want to work through this thing, um, and and it was also um, it was also significant because it was it wasn't these young wannabe um, MK people, it was the older you know the the generation of the fifties, yeah. fifty sixty year olds yeah. you know it wasn't like sort of <laughs> these days it did the sixteen year old MKs so but anyway. So, um, so, so that, and then of course, I mean, just to say from the small group that I was in, you know, 
the um, and, and in other small groups that I was in when people listened to each other's story, the things that they, that they share is not necessarily about what happened during the war. You know, it might be things that happened after it or what happened before it. You know, so it's about um, uh, something about your mother that didn't care for you, your family, dysfunctionality, abuse, and all of that kind of things. And even the different reasons why people join the, um, uh, and become part of military formations, you know, because they're seeking purpose in life because they're so dysfunctional at home. All things are happening and things like that and so on. So, in those small groups, when you were saying people find each other, finding each other again, people do find each other on a personal level. I must stress this, on an individual level. I can listen to your story and I can, I can see you, I, can, I get you, I know what you're talking about, I know how it feels when your mother or your father leaves. You know, we've got similarities here, we're part of the same family. Um, then when we come back into the bigger group, we pull out the feelings that came out and people listed, and then we look at the themes, you know. So then the themes would be things like about um, maybe um, economic justice, you know, the whole thing about having a job. Um, it would be things, you know, the things that would be about gender-based violence. We also had women in the group. be about gender-based violence. It would be about a whole range of things. And then the loss of land, the land issue. Now, we found each other now in the small group on a personal level, but now we must connect it to the big issues, you know. And then this, of course, is where we're going we're gonna to knock heads, you know. Um, and, and then through that process of talking it through, it's the beginning of the conversation of looking what needs to be done? So then the theme, the things come out around restitution and how can we have economic justice and what can we all do? But the shift usually comes to a sense where people begin to realize they're all part of the human family, you know? And it is a, it is a first, sometimes not even a first step, is a crawl <laughs> instead of a first step in terms of realizing them, because there is such a lot of things that people have to unlearn um, in terms of their own sense of superiority, their own sense of inferiority, their own sense of, um, of, of their own life experience that they've gone through, which has dehumanized them, you know, and, and so forth and so on. And then, of course, we move towards a space where we then do a celebration, where people are asked to um, well then we work with clay, people produce a, a symbol, a peace symbol, and we kind of dedicate it to something or to an idea. You know? So as usually happens at, at these workshops, people leave with quite a euphoric kind of, oh, the possibility, it creates hope. Mm -hmm. If we, in this small space, the 20 of us can make it, can become friends, um, we, we don't have to agree and agree, we don't have to agree, but at least there's hope. We can talk to one another. That's the important thing, is that we can talk to one another. And so that is the Healing of Memories workshop that we then, um, since the people came to us, we said, let's, let's take people through that. Um, and we've done it with the, with the military veterans um, 
in the Western Cape, we, because we first started here, uh, and it's different in, 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 so now we're in Cape, in, in the Western Cape, I would say because we're in Worcester, not in the Western Cape, we're in Worcester, Popular. and we can have our first thing in Paul, and then we have people in the broader Cape metropolitan area from these housing things. Um, and then we have people, uh, um, Mama Lodi in, in, in Gauteng, and then people from, that is linked to the Pretoria University Spirituality Center, uh, that's been working with military veterans, which is mostly South African Defense Force um, people. And then we have people, uh, military veterans in Amherstal, in KZN. So it's quite different uh, groups. And, it's a, and surprisingly, this program is one of the, the younger programs now, projects, I would say, within the Institute. Because it was almost as if now when people are um, going into the sunset years, they want to set things right. Mm. You know, they want to, um, they're looking back or there's now the realization that maybe I wasn't right. You know, maybe what I did, you know, and also for their own children, because the children are keeping to them to account. And part of this, when we talk about the children, is that we then have these dialogues, these intergenerational dialogues, particularly between the children um, of the military veterans and other young people to understand what it is that people went through. Now, because for military veterans do not speak to their children about what they've been through. That is the first thing that we've discovered. They don't tell stories. Um, and they find it very difficult to speak to them. When you ask them, you know, so we have things, why can't you talk to them? You know, when we have a conversation just with the military veterans, why can't you talk to your children about this? You know, it's like, why do they need to know about all these ugly things? Mm. You know? Um, and then also, they, they, won't, they will never understand. The other thing is, military veterans is always, you. You won't, even when we are like, Fatima, you won't understand, you know? I know you guys are on the streets, but you won't understand. You were not in the bush, you know? So there's a whole bush psychology that comes out. Um, but also that uh, lots of the time, some of the military veterans are just too ashamed to talk about what they've done. Some of the detail. Some of the detail, mm -hmm. you know? I cannot tell my child that I saw this, this human being I shot them, I went to go and stand next to the corpse and then I have somebody take a picture so that I, you know, because this is what I've done. In fact, when I look back, like a trophy, and when I look back, at, I can't even believe it myself that I can do that, you know, um, that I could do that and that that was the person that I was. So there's a thing of shame as well. Lots of shame, lots of shame about it and guilt, you know. And then, of course, the, the role of religion in all of that. But also the, um, that, you know, you were using the word naive. How could I have been so naive to have believed it? Mm -hmm. You know, how could I, couldn't I think for myself? And then, of course, when we look through the themes about it is how do we, um, you know, so we take people through, so what was at that time? What was conscription? What was the education? That it takes a whole society. That's a story for you, for, uh, for your collection. 
Yeah. Our, we had a sex all boys dinner, city uh, reunion dinner. Mm. And we had a big night of sex. Uh, all these sex came and gave mm. keynote speak and we got a lack of chaseit up till one, two in the morning. Mm. And some of the guys, and there were four different grades at mm. sex high school. And the, 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 young, the, the, the lowest grade of student was like the, D, the E4 class. Mm. And they were the biggest veterans of the SDF. They did 16 years of camps and mm. stuff. Right? And they came because they knew I was like an anti-man by that time. Mm. And they came up to me one by one. Mm. And they said, why didn't they tell us? I thought, what are they talking about now? He said, why didn't they tell us in high school, in cadets, what we were being trained for and what we were being selected for and what we went through in those 16 years after 1973. Because mm. my class went through the whole show. Mm. I, was, I was a commander in 74, mm. when we weren't even allowed to be there. Mm. And if you read the history books, I was never there. Because mm. we were 250 k's by an enemy lines in Angola. Mm. I was an LNG carrier dropped by helicopter. Mm. And we were chasing the soldiers into the arms of the, of the ambushers. Mm. Okay. So we were frontline soldiers. And they were not angry with the SDF or the South African government. They were angry with sex teachers for not telling them the truth when they were in high school. Hmm. Yeah. Because they were recruited out of, no, there was 16. And I think that was all the other thing that, that was a similarity. When people went on this journey of militarization, when they were the age of 17, 18 years old. Other people conscripted, some people voluntarily making their choice. But at that young age, you know, that shapes your whole world after that. And then, then they can, because now all of them have a similarity in terms of a lost youth almost, if you could put it that way, you know? So, and then there's also the guilt of being in military, whether you are in the South African Defense Force or in the Liberation, a movement where you made decisions that cost people's lives, you know. So that whole question, even if, even um, in terms of our healing the wounds of history project, where we're working with the sort of massacres and people that were killed during um, the apartheid times in communities, um, is that I was the leader of the civic. We decided in that meeting we're going to go march. We occupied the rent um, office, and then people got killed, you know? So even that year, it was a struggle, but now, when I'm 60, 70 years old, I'm thinking back to the time when we made that decision, and somebody got killed because of that decision, and I was the chairperson, okay. you know? Extent, I want to say to a personal, individual decision, as opposed to having become conditioned into that mindset because people are not instinctively, inherently aggressive. Mm. You can, you can mm. take any percentage from 90% to 64% of so-called constrict, constructive mm. people, individuals, who are mobilized mm. and put into a situation where they do end up mm. killing other people or they're expected to but kill other people. And then yeah. they have this, this guilt complex. Mm. And, um, this little sort of introduction to, to the bottom line question, to, to, to what extent, what's your product? To what extent have you had success? What kind of success have you had? Because mm. these 50, 60 year olds with this guilt complex, 
need to understand that in many cases they didn't just sit quietly at home and say, well, I'm waiting for opportunity to go and kill somebody <laughs> on behalf of this country, on behalf of this liberation movement, on behalf of something else. They were conditioned in it. They might have ended up believing in that in the initiative yeah. or not. Now these people have learned, now they can look back and you say there's this lack of communication between them and the young people. They've learned the lesson. What they can contribute to the next generation is the lesson that they learn. Yeah, yeah. And I think the bottom line that I hear from you yeah. as an anthropologist is yeah. there's one beginning solution to this sort of thing. You know, there's a little song that goes, getting to know you, yeah. getting to know more. King and I. Yeah. Mm. South Africans now, as we speak, as we sit here, lack that yeah. individual uh, interaction and understanding. We need to use the word, and I like that word. There are a lot of things that we still have to unlearn mm. from our domestic situation now, all of us. Mm. And I'm being accusatory and I'm looking at myself. Mm. In the middle. Yeah. Yeah, I think when people um, look, I can only give you my impressions and when I talk to them and so on. At the, at the end of the day, even if you recognize that from, and you look back and you can say that in the school this is what they did, and then we went there, and, 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 and yes, we were, as somebody would say, we were led like lambs to the slaughter mm. in many ways. Mm. That when they reflect on their lives, they have a sense that, but I could, I should have known, even with all of these things that people couldn't I think for myself, you know? And it's a big indictment on themselves, like. So, um, how could I not think for myself? Why didn't I think for myself? Now we're talking about, and that is when we have the conversation of how a society can radicalize people, how you create, you know, um, hatred. hatred, how you can motivate people to do things where there's no critical thinking. Now, I, I wanted to step back. You said that since you've arranged, say, a protest action, and you move to certain offices and you protest mm -hmm. there, and then there's riot police and people are shot. Now you feel guilty that they were shot. But did you really expect that there would be violence, that amount of violence against you? So can you really accept responsibility? Counter reaction caused the, the, the death. Mm. It wasn't actually your action. Naive. I think it's, 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 look for me, for the thing what we value, it is your experience. Mm. We cannot take away your experience of how you interpret that, yeah. that yeah. events and how it impacted. Yeah. And how it impacted on you. You know? I'm just trying to help you to get over it. <laughs> no, no, it's not me personally. <laughs> it's not me personally. Yeah, yeah, no, no. no, but I mean the yeah. person who's saying that. Yes. Know, sometimes you are not really directly responsible. And you, and you, and you objectively, like the yeah. thing is you objectively real, realize that. And they do. Objectively they can yeah. realize it. But yet still It was there, so they yeah, did. I'm on, a, I'm on a roll here. Consciousness mm. and ideology, right? Yeah. If you have acquired the consciousness of a suffering,
person with a burden of memories that made you feel guilty and you're still guilty and shamed now, that's what's got to have to come out because yeah. you can't, okay. in my own personal experience, yeah. you can't sit on these memories, yeah. sit on the shame, sit on the guilt and do nothing because my experience from a psycho, I call it psycho-spiritual, my experience from a psycho-spiritual mm. point of view is it's a volcano mm. and the longer you sit in it, the worse it gets, not the better. Mm. And so what I experienced in 75 was a, a massive reaction to my, to being traumatized mm. basically. And then I sat in it, I got into marriage and family and the bourgeois lifestyle and everything was cool. In 91 it just popped again because I hadn't dealt with it. I, I'd yeah. exposed it, mm. but I just put the lid on it and mm. sat on the thing for another decade. Yeah. So what I experienced through that process is that at some point, individually at least, mm. you, have to, you have to relieve yourself of the burden. You can even call it psycho-spiritual constipation. You have to let go of those traumatic experiences, whatever they might be. But you can't do that alone because you don't have the tools to do it. Yeah. So you need yeah. to find people that are sympathetic, mm. that you can, like the stuff that you're yeah. talking about. When you, where there's a safe space, space to for that. people to, to be able to, and just to get it out. And that is what people usually say, it's just the weight that has been lifted off my shoulder. Nothing great has shifted, you know. My reality hasn't changed. Mm. But just knowing that I'm not carrying this alone, and now people know about it, makes it makes life a bit easier in, in, in Easy some to handle, to handle really. in some way. So there is a, but I think for me personally, it speaks to our deep sense of humanity. That either when we know that we were doing it for the right reason, and it ended in a tragedy, that we are still so deeply affected by it, you know, and that we feel a sense of responsibility towards our fellow human being, you know. And I think those most probably is the complexity of a psychologist to be able to give us a better, <laughs> big spectrum interpretation, interpretation of that. <laughs> so it is the... Um, we have an anthropologist here. We have an anthropologist. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Excuse, sorry to interrupt, mm. but you're going to that whole thing of appropriate guilt and inappropriate guilt. The, the stuff that you're talking about is actually like the inappropriate guilt. It's stuff that you not really can take responsibility for. I, I'll give you an example. When I left home, I only spoke to my dad six months later. And the first thing he said to me is, you took 10 years of my life. Mm. Okay. So when he died, I thought I killed him. Mm. It's as stupid as that. Mm. But it's that inappropriate guilt of thinking, all right, you know what, I was responsible for it. And it's just to get that perspective, but you can't do it alone. Mm. You need the help of others just to take it off your chest, just to let it go yeah. and realize, but hang on, if I steal a pencil, <laughs> let's say, steal a pencil, I'll, I'll feel guilty about it because I've done something wrong. And it's just, we haven't done something wrong, we did something with the knowledge we had then. And hindsight is a perfect science. So, yes. It's always going to look bad when we look back. But it has to be Sometimes the senator. There has to be a third party. And, and yeah. there has to you be... You won't get off the volcano. Most people won't get off the volcano. Not alone. Yeah. They'll just suffer through it. I agree. So, so, so by the way, it's the same thing as talking yeah. to your children, right? Yeah. Because you're sitting on this material, and I'm telling you now what I experienced, and I go, there was nothing to what other people. 
experience. Mm. I won't even begin to say what they told me because it's too shocking. Mm. But they can't talk about it except to me as fellow veterans. That's number one. Mm. Because if they begin to talk it to those that are around and their loved ones, particularly the females and the children, it's just too much. They can't cope with that uh, uncorking experience because they don't know where it's going to go, mm -hmm. where they themselves will end. So there's this sense of defending your, your territory and defending your psycho-spiritual place against your most loved ones because mm -hmm. they're the ones to whom you are most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You always open up to them more quickly than your, your, your drinking buddies. You know? mm -hmm. If with drinking buddies, you just tell comic stories. That's all you ever reveal. Mm. Um, but with your intimate folk, you can actually afford to tell the whole complex stories. Mm. But as a white male South African, and I categorize myself like that, it's more difficult because we have a culture of mm. that but, I talk about. It. Yeah, but also what they say is, what are my children going to think about me? Mm. You know? How are they going to view me if they know these things about me? To what extent you're damaging their innocence by telling them horror stories. You know? So, but the story needs to be told. So how, In a way, yeah. How would you feel if maybe you were to meet to be aware that maybe your father led the Soviet massacre in 1976 that led to the death of many students in Soweto? I think I would feel like my father was a hero who participated in the fight for the democracy. So how would you feel if your father led that that student march? Yeah. So yeah, I think that's what you're saying. It's perspective, you know. It depends where you, as a child, then are coming from. Because you must remember also, and this is what comes out from the military veterans' liberation in particular, is their children, as they were saying, is ridiculing them. We're not talking about these, uh, when we talk about, there was a lot of foot soldiers. They're not all in government. <laughs> in fact, they are in the majority. Um, and they are in townships. And they are jobless. You know? Their children are ridiculing them. What did you do this for? Born you know? freeze. Mm. Born freeze. It's a means to the end. Does it justify the end? I think that's the important yeah. question. Yeah. It's so, okay to have 164 people killed because you eventually reached your goal. Yeah. And, that's a, that's and, it is a, and it is a moral story. You know, it's also that thing about people's idea of, of what is. But it's a personal thing about how the children would react from their own life experience. Yep and the interaction with the father and how they see them, and the whole upbringing about whether they would see him as a, uh, a hero, or somebody that has caused the death of so many people. Couldn't you have found another way, you know, for the same thing? So it's, it's, but I think what all of this usually brings up to us is number one is we need to normalize the feelings. We're human beings and we have all these crazy ideas and feelings, and it's normal. It doesn't make you nutcase. Um, a nutcase. It doesn't make you, you know, you, we don't have to pathologize it, mm. right? That these things happen. And that each, each, several people could have been, I mean, for an example, we're working with a group of women from Alsis River. And in 1992, you and the TRC, mm. David the Brain got shot 
I'm talking about that um, incident now in particular. And so there was a rent boycott in the city, and Ventura was there, and, and so on, and people got, and people got shot. So, so, so we, we're talking with a whole group of women who were there at the same event during that time. And the way they experienced it and interpreted it now, so many years later, is totally different. Some of them are quite okay with it. <laughs> Others are traumatized by it. They still remember it in graphic detail. You know, somebody would say, I can't remember if we were running this way or that way and so on. And other person will say, I clearly remember. I remember the dress the person wore. Wow. You know? Like a video clip. Like a video clip. Um, and for different reasons, people are traumatized by different degrees by a very same event that happened where all of them were present, um, which is very um, interesting. Do you, you know? measure, again, in terms of your interventions, what sort of success do you feel you are having or have had or will be having in terms of yeah. all Look, this stuff that you've mm. described? In terms of, um, it's, look, I mean, it, it, it's, it's anecdotal, to, to say, right? In, in terms of the feedback that we get from people. Or that they refer them to other people to say, you must come. Or uh, family, wives that call the office to say, I don't know what you did on that workshop. <laughs> I don't know what you did on that workshop. You know? But he's a different man. Wonderful. Which is an important question. Why do they go in the first place? Yeah. And and why, don't, why don't they go to someone else? Uh, and why, why don't, don't they go to someone else? Yes. That's yes. It. Sorry, can we just have Ruben's intervention? Um, so your, your intervention is individual-focused. And individuals are caught up in systems, systems mm. of thought, ideology, mm. specifically. And maybe preempting the session tomorrow. That's fine. The TRC intervention was about systems. Mm. That was the original idea. Mm. But the deal made with the military, if you will, the sunset clause, mm. was that it became individual. So the amnesty process, for example, was an individual confession driven process. Mm. And it left the system unquestioned. Mm. Yeah, the source. Just, just for that, everybody knows the sunset clause, the, the phrase, eh? there's nobody who doesn't understand it. Summarize it. Well, very simply, that when we were doing the negotiations at Codesa leading up to the 94 elections, the process of 1990-94, one of the deals that was struck on the recommendation of Joe Slover was that the existing apartheid apparatus and the township and everything that it made South Africa what it was in 1989, that it would stay intact until two, the year 2000, and that the people that were primarily responsible for um, the maintenance of the apartheid state would not be losing their jobs before, I think, December 2008. So what we're talking about now is another clause in that agreement. Okay, carry on. So, for example, the... the Oh, so the background is, I was the executive secretary in the TRC, so I, I, I know more than I should. <laughs> so that's, that's the background. And you sleep okay? I'm okay. <laughs> I'll just put you in, in jail. Um, so the, the, the process was confession, individual confession driven, so that ties in mm. with 
feeling of the memories of the individual. But it left a question mark or a cloud of uncertainty about the system that produced this kind of individual. And if we don't fix the system, it's going to continue to produce that kind of individual. Now, fast forward into, into our current economy and our current status, and, and let's use a controversial example of a system of entitlement. Mm. And so I'm, 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 in, I'm in, in industry, and, and the example is you try and get a, a, a person of color to be excited about work <laughs> and productivity. Mm. Because it is a system, a, a psychology of th this government owes me, so I'm going to sit on my gut and I'm going to do nothing. Now, I mean, that is a recipe for disaster. It really is. Right? And we're beginning to reap a whirlwind about that. So I was on a call the day before yesterday with a very illustrious crowd of people, including former presidents of the country, to talk about exactly that. Because they had left that system untouched. So you deal with the individuals. Mm. Yeah. Like a system. So, so the, the question then, to turn it into the form of a question, what is the bridge between your individual therapy, which is necessary for mm. an individual, to the system that produces this individual? Mm. Because we are in a racial, we come from a racialized past. This guy or lady who, who comes to your workshop goes back to their racially defined world. Mm. So the white goes back to his white world and so on and so on. Mm. And your point of reference and values and mm. affirmations remain the same. It must be incredibly difficult. I mean, mm. this is, you can possibly speak to that mm. more eloquently than any of us. So that's the yeah. question. So there's, there's three in, levels. I'm only within the context of mm. the other yeah. yeah. situation. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because we don't get to know each other. Yeah. yeah. So there are three levels, I think, in which we're doing As I think in the, in the healing of memories itself, when we start talking about the thematic areas of what are the structures, what are the things, institutional things, that leads to what you've gone through? So it's, it's that kind of beginning to, to raise the questions and the consciousness that these things doesn't happen um, by chance. Yeah. It's orchestrated, it is thought through, and this is, and this is where we then land up. And some of these things are overlapping and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's beginning to, 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 to bring that kind of consciousness. And then, of course, when we do follow-up work, what we now do is psychoeducation. We call it psychoeducation. So the one thing is to look at, um, for instance, what is the impact of this systematic um, oppression, say, for instance, of the, the colored male, the emasculation of men, you know, on the self-esteem, all of those things over years. So if somebody who is now uh, 35 has got his doctorate, very articulate, comes to me and says, you know, Fatima, whenever I'm in the company of white males, you know, it's as if I know nothing. Same. You know? Mm. Now, and he knows. He knows for a fact. He knows. And then I have to again gather myself. Feel as if he knows nothing, or is he made to feel like important, he knows nothing? Important are, point. Are, yeah. are the whites in the 
No, no, he feels, no, no, no. He feels it from himself. Can I answer that? Yes, okay, you answer that. Yeah, he can answer with the third. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not the example in the story, but I am the guy with the doctor. And even today, I'm in, in circles, in white-dominated circles, because I'm, I'm a commercial farmer. I'm the only commercial farmer of color for 150 kilometers in my area. Right? Now, I'm in, I'm in, the, in, the, in the circle, and for what it's worth, we're one of the larger commercial farm, farming enterprises. So in Cape Town, in Cape Place language, it is a dub dub. I'm like a big cheese. No? Mm -hmm. We employ a couple of hundred people mm -hmm. and so on. But in that circle, it is assumed that mm -hmm. I know nothing. It's a tiki Right? So I went to court two weeks ago. Give you an example. One of my workers got into trouble, <laughs> didn't pay his support money for the mother of the child, mm. and so on. And he didn't have the papers to prove that, he, that he, he's employed by me. And so I got a call, and I said, okay, I'll go to, I'll go to court. I'll support my worker, okay? Mm. So I go to court. Prosecutor sitting there. Mm. I take it easy, Mr. Richards, yeah, Mr. Richards, okay. Oh, so, uh, so he says to the worker, oh, so did your foreman go <laughs> you, you brought your supervisor. Mm. Now I left it, you know. So he says, Manya, this guy, it's an A. It's the A and R when he plows. Hey, Manya, they open his pen down, eh? <laughs> And it, it changes his, his frame right. of reference. It's old manner, yeah. It's like, okay, okay. No, well, it's like, what do I now say to this guy? <laughs> have, you, have you corrected or affected that environment that you're explaining where this presumption in terms of the people around you is what you're saying? But what your presence there has changed the mindset. Yeah. Has this happened in your wider? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it, it happens. Um, sorry, it's your session, so I'm just asked permission. Can I, I'll just finish this. No, 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 no. So, um, towards the end of last year, um, so there's some people that know who I am, my credentials, and all of that, and so on. And there's a, there's a crisis in the, in, the, in the community, broader community, and long story short, I get invited to facilitate the first ever session of a diverse group of people in this town. White farmers, white business people, community activists. Mm. So there's, there's a racial mix here. And I'm the facilitator. Now, if you know anything about me, I'm a very robust facilitator. Mm. Okay. The white people in the group mm. assume that they can just bully the facilitator. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong move. Okay? Because uh, now if, you, if you look at it sort of positively, they know they, they like to engage. Mm -hmm. But their opinions must always carry. I said, Bob, I'm the facilitator mm -hmm. here. You've got one minute to make your point. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. Now, the post-mortem of that, and it was a series of three mm -hmm. engagements. The post-mortem went as follows. So I get invited to the... Chamber of Commerce dinner, end of dinner, end of year dinner. Lucky chair. Yeah, I must, I must have made it, right? 
<laughs> and the chairperson of the Chamber of Commerce comes to my table and she wants to make sure that, that the Buddha that's sitting at the table know who's sitting at the table, right? Mm. Oh, have you, have you met Dr. Richards? Mm. And, oh, Dr. Richards, okay. So does he, oh. Mm. And then this woman, who's a white woman, says, Yom, you must be careful of this guy. You know, he put us all on our place. <laughs> so, so I've got the reputation in that town that in this context of facilitation, you're not going to get away with murder with this guy. <laughs> but I'm the only guy of color in the town that the white people will not cross swords with. <laughs> so now what's happening is that all the people of color are streaming to my door. They come to the place there by me, and, and they want to get counsel because yeah. what have I got that the white people <laughs> talk to me like that? Mm. You know? How did you get that together? Hundred percent, hundred percent. So it's an opportunity yeah. to facilitate mm. and so on. So that's the answer yeah. to the question. But to get back to your question, it's a combination of both. Yeah, yeah. because we mustn't we mustn't underestimate the um, success of apartheid. In social engineering, yeah. you know, we we mustn't underestimate it on the psyche, on the psyche of a people. Yeah. You know that that, um, like for instance, one of I was a teacher, so one of my stu my ex students came to me once, well, long since I've left teaching, and he was a lawyer, and he says, you know, Miss, he still called me Miss, you know, Miss. I was driving my mother through um, Stellenbosch. They were doing something. He went to a lecture. I don't know what it was, but his mother was with him. And then there was these white young men that were drinking and things like that and so on. So she, she said to me, it's okay, they can do it, but you mustn't do it because they're white. Mm. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. For instance, I have family that lives in Atlantis. So I've adopted some of the nieces, you know, things are not so well. So during school holidays, they come to me. When you take them to the theater, they feel uncomfortable. Because there's too many white people here. Can we also be here? You know? Are we allowed to be here? And this is 20 damn bloody years after mm. apartheid has died. You know? So you cannot begin to imagine the impact when people are still living in these silos where the system, where when people say that Cape Town is an unfriendly space, where people are being made to feel unfriendly, you know? and that kind of stuff. From our program, our youth program that we run as the institute, which is called Restoring Humanity, the biggest thing that the young people say that they get from it is learning to be confident. Oh, yeah. okay. Learning to be yeah. confident so that when anybody comes, whether white, big friends, yeah, yeah. doctor or not, they are able to speak their mind, say what they want to say and do it. And, and this is a class thing as well. You know, it's a class thing as well. Kids who go to the middle class schools, have the accent and so on, much more confident. Working class kids, they are conscious of the way they pronounce the words, can they, may not. You know, they, they make themselves small in the space. And I have seen that. You know, you've workshopped all these kids and then you take them, because what we do with our programs, we take them into spaces where they normally would not go. And then you can almost see how they shrink back. And then you have to let them tell, <laughs> take up the space, you know? 
You, can, I, can I share? Yeah. My, my daughter is a medical doctor at Worcester Hospital. And of course, my wife's a, a psychoanalyst, so she's the therapist in the family. So, mommy, mommy and daughter debrief. But daughter tells mommy, and mommy was a nurse. Daughter tells mommy, mommy, there's certain white people that refuse to call me doctor. And so what I do is, I just tell them, I refuse to treat you. Mm. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Hypocritic oath, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. But this is two weeks ago. Yeah, for sure. Two weeks ago. Ippi? Yeah, a lot of work to do. Ippi's got the floor. The floor for two seconds. I just want to chip in because I'm from the Netherlands originally. Uh -huh. I've only been in the country for 22 years. But my niece is a medical doctor as well. Even she, as a white woman in Holland, uh -huh. will be addressed, as, especially by the older generation, as the nurse. So that's the gender thing. Wow. That's yeah, the gender yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. the doctor. People don't see her as a doctor. Yeah. Well, I can actually relate to that one as well. I'm gender-based. I have men getting up. I'm, I'm a hairdresser, men's hairdresser. And that when a friend says, I have men getting up out of my chair, sorry. You're a woman, you cannot cut my hair. <laughs> no. So, yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's not just facing whatever. Yeah. I'll give you a little example from the neighborhood I was in once. A new person, a new family moved into the house in this particular street. And uh, the housewife of the house, already occupied by her, walks out and she sees the woman next door in terms of the house that people are moving in. Said, uh, hello. Um, have you people moved in? She says, yes. Is your madam at home? I'd like to welcome. <laughs> I'd like to welcome them to the neighbourhood. <laughs> Stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. So how do you how do you change it? You know, change this. I mean, and this is what you're doing. So this is yes, this is what we. They, they're not doing this very effectively. Come speak to me. It's cold. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, it's also going on, because my former sister-in-law from my first marriage, she is a corporate HR specialist in that in change management, diversity mm. management at the workplace. Mm. So one can honestly say, and maybe not in that, but there are little pockets yeah. to this industry, mm. yeah. in the corporate workplace, in, in, mm. in the institutions, yeah. in the universities, there's a lot of the work going on. It's not broadcast, mm -hmm. but my problem is more deep-seated because of my study of ideology, mm -hmm. lifelong study of ideology, and going back to the old classic Marxist school of, of mm -hmm. Althusser and, and, and Gramsci and all that stuff, mm -hmm. is that it works, as, as Althusser explained very neatly, but a bit in a bit of a flowery mm -hmm. style, that you've got your ideological state apparatus, you've got mm -hmm. your schooling system, mm -hmm. you've yeah. got your media system, system. Mm -hmm. you've got your faith-based system mm. and you've got your, 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 your corporate systems and things mm. which are all harmonized, if you can use that word, mm. to deliver a particular deal. Yeah. In mm. our case, in the white middle-class schools, it was so-called Christian national education, yeah. CNE we call mm. it for short, and then there was this thing called Bantu education. Mm. And I experienced Bantu education firsthand as a textbook publisher because I would go to these remote areas, I did nine languages, I've got all the remote areas mm. right up. You'll be going nowhere. 
And I sat in this workshop one day with a bunch of teachers. I thought, apartheid set out to render people stupid. You know, mm. they come in bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at five years old, mm. and they come out dwarfed at like 18. Mm. It's set about systematically undermining people's intelligence by having a, a very instrumentalist view mm. of the product that they were going to deliver. Mm. The child information, I published teacher training manuals mm. as well. The child information, the content mm. It was for me an ideological nightmare because I could see it operating at ground level. And I could see it because of my media work. Mm. I could see it in the media, I could see it in the schools, I could certainly see it in the, the, the places of faith-based mm. institutions. It was, a, it was a message that was conveyed systematically over uh, 50 years, aided and abetted by group areas removals, mm. to create insiders. Now we stuck with them, even in Bled we stuck with them. Yeah. And the because challenge for me, yeah, my challenge, my challenge for me is institutional, counter-ideological, La, 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 even poetry and dance, you know, mm. there are things we have to do. My question for the house is, what are the baby steps for this institution of beauty municipality with mm. funding from other institutions like Frederick, Ebert, Frederick, was it Frederick, Ebert, Frederick Ebert, yeah. Ford Foundation are interested. What baby steps can we take in Bitu to create a, this kind of a gedacht mm. environment? And I'm looking to you, organic leaders, to tell me what we must do. I think I, I, I fully subscribe, you, you mentioned education. I think mm. education is the basis of this all. Mm. So I'm saying, why did the new government not realize exactly what you were saying? Mm. That the, the change the education system right in 1994 mm. to try and get products where people can believe in themselves and this is, a, this is another trauma experience on the education policy desk of the ANC. <laughs> what we had, instead of a brand which I believed in, in my heart and soul, that's what I worked in the industry for, was a brand new possibility of transposing mm. uh, school-based education, mass yeah. school-based education, yeah. into a transformative experience yeah. for a whole generation yeah. of children. We got outcomes-based education <coughs> instead. Yeah. And the reason we got OBE because, bless them, the Labour Party Stalinist ideologues took the system and ground yeah. it under their, their rule. Yeah. So what we have now is we have a communist ideology, which is as bad as, and I'm saying this openly, yeah. as bad as the National Party. Not because it's a bad ideology, because it's so rigidly applied. Yeah. Yeah. And that inflexibility of understanding and the refusal to accept dissenting voices yeah. has been instrumental in degrading the possibilities that were set up in, yeah. in the period of 1990 yeah. to 1995. There was such hope yeah. and vision in that short yeah. period. But within, in my personal experience, within five years we had gear in 95, yeah. all the ramifications that went with that. So for me, we're now back in 1989, ironically. Yeah. And we're saying, right, we're back to where we left off in yeah. 89, with a transformative project in the real sense of the word, not an ideological yeah, yeah, project, yeah. but an open-hearted project, which doesn't have a name, yeah, except you yeah, can I just Can I just bring that back to also the question that you were asking, mm. and also my own background in, in education, mm. and of course very much being a part of Freire in the way in which we, we do. My so, so huh? <laughs> I said my friend. Your friend. So what we're trying to build, particularly with our youth group, youth work is to do what we call popular education, you know? 
and popular education would be looking at history in a way. So when we take the kids to the District 6 Museum or to the Google 7 um, thing, to, in, to, to interrogate and to, to become critical thinkers in the way in which they think things, not to tell them what to think, right? Um, and so we have, and, and, but now we're expanding that to our work with the military veterans who are so um, indoctrinated, you know, they're dogmatic. How do you get people out of a dogmatic framework into a one where uh, they are critical thinkers and they can think and be creative about things? And we do that with our community work as well, where we have community dialogues, which is really about addressing some. And so what we've done is to directly link healing to justice, right? Injustice calls woundedness, which means that we have to come and do some work. So if we address the injustice, then there are less, there will always be, we'll always have um, things that happen in the world. You know, people are dying, you have a pandemic, you have grief, you have losses. These natural things that are always going to cause stuff about life. Mm -hmm. But there are other things which are um, orchestrated by human beings to harm and wound people. So that is that we need to stop. So we need to link that. Whether it is about water issues, whether it is about food, whether it's about any of those things. So it's doing popular education around that, but linking it to healing. So for instance, now we started working with what I would say is, um, when I was telling you the new type, <laughs> is to link up with, um, with people which is kind of your self-organizing movement types, right, of organizations. So in Bonteville, for instance, you have the Bonteville Development Forum. In Bishop Labors, you have another whatever. So they are all about people self-organizing themselves. Again, going back to creating street committees, taking ownership of decision-making and doing things. How do you support those groups of people in terms of their mental health, mm -hmm. in terms of what has happened to them, in terms of unlearning certain behaviors, in terms of not falling into victimhood um, or entitlement, and seeing that everybody is possibly your ally, not your ally, solidarity partner in building a different world, mm -hmm. you know? Because these uh, groups can be very exclusionist. Of course. So, yeah. um, very quickly. Yeah. Very quickly. Mm. So, how can, we, how can we do this? Mm. And um, so, just the, be so the beginning of the year, one of our first workshops was with a group of 35 young people from Bonteville Youth Development Forum, out on a farm, they did a whole lot of things. But they were able also to, to share their stories and their pain which is around drugs, it's about incest, it's about just um, domestic, violence. domestic violence, poverty, and all of those things. You can't have broken leaders make spare decisions, <laughs> you know? And so how do we get these young people to have a healthy outlook on life who are dealing with this stuff, who are seeing how this stuff influences the decisions they make how they interact with other people so that they can build a healthier society. Mm. So the, the trajectory that we're following now in terms of the healing of memories is saying, let's look at targeted people that we work with 
who is working within the social economic justice sphere in terms of supporting that. But it also supports them in terms of that that community then sees but you're doing something for us. They're not necessarily, everybody's not gonna join the organization, but you need the support of them, you know? So, and so that is part of, of, of the new way in working, so that it's not just about the individual. It's not about individual, it's not about healing for healing's sake. It's about engaging in your own journey for healing so that you can make a bit better contribution, in a better position to make a contribution, you know? So sorry, you wanted to say something? Uh, I'm not putting experts in myself, but like uh, uh, I had questions in the presentation that you had, Professor Ina, but I want to be able to put it together. Maybe the question that I will raise will allow maybe, I'm not sure whether I will, if it's a good question or maybe I'll be out of line. Firstly, when you speak, I feel like you, you're talking about the healing dimension. Maybe like you've got this idea of the world that you have. Uh, do you think that it is possible in an unequal society to achieve what you're talking about? Uh, for example, uh, from the presentation by Professor Elia, uh, uh, I had a question firstly. What is the purpose of this so-called festival? Uh, I, I gave it the attention for the very first time. I remember last of us I was here, but yeah, yeah. I never took my slide. Yeah, you uh, and then there were a student from Blackset during Professor's presentation asked myself, I wonder what would be the impact of this presentation in their mindset? Is it going to make them to be angry? They create more angry society. Because like they feel like no one, these things that you see now, like you were bringing the roots of the problem. Mm. Uh, okay. Now that like based on your presentation, everybody was in the room, they say, look at me. There are settlers who came in this part of the country uh, with nothing, with no land, with no cattle, as you said. But they end up owning everybody, everything. But the people who find them here, they end up uh, in a way more enslaved. Mm -hmm. uh, now that if they understand the presentation, maybe how can we help like the, to reach, to reach uh, I believe, in order for the society to be part of healing for everybody to get this kind of presentation. How can we make sure that each one teacher so that can be one of everyone? Also, I think it can be maybe much better if... I will come visit you in jail, that's okay. <laughs> Uh, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can get a job with me as a fellow organizer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think it, 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 it might be much better if they say, uh, now uh, there are, okay, now there are descendants of settlers and descendants of indigenous people. Mm. Uh, uh, I've put in my, in my own space, I feel like, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but this is how I feel. Uh, <laughs> Don't be sorry about it. <laughs> be bold, be confident. Let me be apologetic for, <laughs> for the sake of this argument. Uh, I feel like, like the descendants of settlers are not apologetic of their past uh, because they are more comfortable and they, they, they own the economy, while those who, who are the victims of that situation are the ones who have to beg now because of the system. 
Yeah, for example, now we have a situation of like the like of Soma, uh, was part of the situation of March, the month of March. Yeah, I remember. Sonia saying the national anthem. Now we're in a situation where like, everyone is after Soma. I'm happy that he's no longer in government. That was my mission. But in respect of our strategy heroes, I don't want to see him going to jail. That's my awful hope. Um, but uh, when he lied, or when his people lied, they used to like to use the term like radical economic transformation, mm -hmm. of which I like those terms, mm -hmm. uh, for the sake of this argument. Like uh, uh, maybe he was thinking because of the, what we experienced from the professor's presentation, maybe it was his way of fighting back, mm -hmm. even though as uh, the poor of the poor. I will end up being the victims of what he did mm -hmm. because like the working class didn't benefit from mm -hmm. his radical economic transformation. Mm -hmm. But maybe in his thinking he was fighting back because uh, our land and everything that is on it was taken by force. So maybe it was his way of taking it back. Mm -hmm. uh, like uh, platforms like this can help us like uh, to understand this thing better. But I also wish that those who maybe find themselves in a position of better position because of the system can lead uh, this healing process that mm. we're talking about. Mm. Because in reality, according to the way I see mm. things, there's no way that we can all heal while we are not equal. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that we can be equal. I'm coming back, I will talk better. I'm not a communist. I'm talking about the way communism is interpreted by a select band of people. That's true. Okay. That is not communist. Mm. Those who are not communists pretend communist people. Mm. <laughs> communists. We call them Gucci communists. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I want to, I want to address that question that you're saying. Just the last point. I don't think that in a world where there's someone with Return, the one with the di diploma and the one that with a uh, degree, we can be equal. Mm -hmm. Because those people, uh, in terms of information, they are not equal. Mm -hmm. In terms of opportunities, they are not equal. Mm -hmm. uh, just putting aside the issue of race. Mm -hmm. uh, because if one now like we substitute uh, a white capitalist with a black capitalist, mm -hmm. and then expect to produce equality, something mm -hmm. that will never happen, according to my opinion. Mm -hmm. So the, the important thing that we, and it's something which Ruben was doing this morning, was saying is, what is the life philosophy of how we want to live in this world? Mm -hmm. And why are we aspiring to be like the North? Mm. You know, Because we know if we follow that uh, model, mm. we, we're going to be extinct as a species, mm. right? Because of our accumulation, mm. right? But that still becomes our standard. So part of our, uh, um, if you could put it, our uh, popular education is what is our standard of how we live in this world, mm. you know? And so then, while Ruben would call it naivety, it is a way, it's a set of values of how you see relationships and people, mm. you know? And yes, it has taken a dent, right? So for me, sometimes we only meet equality in terms of material things, mm. you know, Possession. our human beings' possessions mm. in terms of our We don't look at our equality in terms of our ethics, 
of our values in terms of all of those kind of stuff. We don't, we don't look, when we look at equality, we look at it materially. And the human being is far more than I think when we talk about, we say, this is spiritual, this is spirituality. There's a level to us in terms of, if I were to measure your humanness, can I measure your humanness to somebody else's humanness in relation to your compassion? You know, I'm almost in Bhutan now. No? Mm. Your compassion, your happiness, and all of those other things. So the lens through which we have been conditioned to look at, to be successful human beings and being equal to others, is only in relation to material things most of the time. Right? And is that really the only lens? And why would we want to take on that lens? Because that lens is not, it's not even, a, you know. And so if you look through the world in different, whether it could be a socialist that has a different perspective, but it is also indigenous, Jude, no more than I, the anthropologist, indigenous communities, which have different lenses in which and how they want to live. And I think we are, at this point in time, COVID-19, the way the climate change is affecting us, the way that some people are beginning to change the language. We're not saving Earth, we're saving ourselves as a species if we don't change. That there's an opportunity for people to begin to see that we need a world, new worldview, you know? And I think that new worldview is, 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 is developing. So in terms of our, of our healing perspective, it says for us to develop that new worldview and that new way, it always starts with small groups of people. <laughs> it always starts with small communities. It becomes an example. It is over time. Change takes place over time. First, we had to get rid of the colonialists. Then we had to get rid of apartheid and slavery and so on. And now we have to get rid of neoliberalism. That's how I see it. But it's. It's over time. Sorry, I'm just going to make a quick yeah. intervention now because time's running out. I want Ru uh, Ruben to say something, Jan to say something. Anyone else want to have a last word? Say it one, two, and then you can yeah. conclude. Yeah. So, so, so that sorry, is sorry, our... Sorry, Fatima. Yeah. Can you just get Ruben to okay. Okay. My contribution would be a challenge to the Institute for the Healing of Memories, which is a, a personal, individual type focus. Um, the challenge would be to look at it more systemically because I think the systems that produce the kind of thinking that, that we have to continually fix remains intact. Mm. So this new book that I'm about to publish gives you an example of the damage to our memories, because you're mm. the healing of memories, mm. um, that needs to be fixed. And, and the caveat to this is, how do you entrench damage in the minds of people? The answer is, you present it as truth, and you canonize the truth. Right? So you still with me? Mm. How did the colonialists do it with regard to the Hottentot, or the indigenous First Nation people? They defined the Hottentot in the Oxford Dictionary. Now, if, if the Oxford Dictionary defines who you are, then that's who you are. The Dutch did the same in their dictionary. And this is what they said in those dictionaries. I'll give you three quotes. With, re with, re with, with reference to the Hottentot, which is what the, the, the cultural trajectory mm -hmm. I come from. 
they, meaning the Hottentots, are the very reverse of humankind. They fill the gap between a rational animal and a beast. That's the one definition. Second definition. They are the most beast-like of all sorts of men. And the last one. You can't tell the difference between an animal and a Hottentot. So, now me, Dr. Ruben Richards, PhD from UCT, a degree from Switzerland, a degree from America, a degree from Germany, me. When I sit in a circle, unless I get up and say, hey, this is my CV, the assumption people make about me and my intellect is exactly this. Because it's a system that has informed the psyche as to how you interact with me. Until I open my mouth and I either kill you verbally or I make you so ashamed of your thinking and it becomes a very ego type thing. But that's the system. And our education system Besides the mm. fact that our Minister of Education should be hung publicly and shot three times, <laughs> um, has done us no favors. Our kids are still coming through our system with this mentality. If my book is the first decolonized history of South Africa that says blatantly that the indigenous people carry the soul and the humanity of of this nation. If I'm the first guy to say it, then I'm not even a professional historian. Mm. Then the historians of our society must be burnt at the stake. Because they have colluded with the system that produces this kind of thinking. Mm. Now, until you fix that, you're going to have to do a whole lot of workshops all the time. Mm. Which is, I'm not saying it's not to be done. I'm just saying there's, a, there's another level of intervention that I think is missing. And that's sort of where I locate my work, which is why I write my books. I couldn't get the publisher to publish my work. Really? You mean to say that, that South African history has something to learn from indigenous people, the first people of this country? Are you, are you telling me that is, that is so revolution? It's an open question. I've got four kids and they're all still in the country and I can assure you none of my kids think like that anymore. They consider everybody Wonderful. But they use your That's the point. That's the point. But mm. I wanted to add that to my earlier point with his story about equality. Equality of opportunity and equality of self-actualization. In other words, we must have exactly the same. Is that what you're trying to say in a sense? My question is actually to you. Because are we going to say everybody must get an equal piece of the country, land, or a certain amount of capital from the government? Or are we saying we must prepare everybody in this country, whatever race, to be as educated as he can due to his natural ability? and so enable himself to reach his full potential as a human. Is that not what he should actually describe? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Do you want to say Fatima gets to conclude. That's why I say I prefer the presentation of the professor. Chief, it wasn't me, no? Sorry, can we know? No. I just want to say, I can't be left unchallenged. 
because <laughs> this is why we have workshops. It cannot. I agree with you that it was the dominant view. There I will agree with you. It was not the only view. You see, if you read my volume one, I tell the story of Van Riebeek versus Prout. Two Dutchmen, same company, completely different views of the humanity of the indigenous people. The choice was to send Van Riebeek with his view. But the guy that was the competing ideology that says, these people are moral beings just like us. Treat them properly. Treat them properly. He didn't get the job. So there were options. So, so I, I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, sorry. So what I, I think I need to wrap it up because you... Yeah. <laughs> so I'm only talking at 4 o'clock and you've got coffee. I think there is coffee and tea available. You want to keep talking? I think it's your workshop. On whose behalf was the Oxford Dictionary speaking? Yeah, sure. Sorry, so from my side mm -hmm. would be... What is the legacy of those um, of the, that dictionary definitions? Mm -hmm. What is the intergenerational legacy mm. of something like that? Because mm. that's what we're dealing with, mm. right? Sure. That is what we're dealing with. The intergenerational le uh, legacy from okay. this morning, so to speak. There's coffee and tea available for the last time today, because he's yeah. going to pack up and go home. So if you want to fetch coffee and tea and come back, carry on talking. That's a good point. What's the legacy is a good question. And that's what we're dealing with. Is the current Oxford Dictionary still protein? No, 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 they've changed it. They've changed it. They've changed it. I've often said that Thank <laughs> you.